Hi, I'm Dominic Norberg. And I'm Duncan McNichol. And this is... Not Exactly Rocket Science. So Not Exactly Rocket Science uh, is our podcast where we, a physicist stroke chemist and uh, an engineer stroke computer scientist, uh, talk to people who do not do those things. Um, we're scientists, but we don't know uh, the vast majority of science um, because that's the way it works. That's very true. And uh, today um, we have come to the zoology building at Glasgow University. Not Strathclyde University. There is a big difference. There's a big difference. Some rivalry as well. And we've come to talk to uh, Dr. Poppy Lamberton, um, who does research into parasites. We should probably let her introduce herself. Here we go. Hi, I'm Dr. Poppy Lamberton, and I'm a senior lecturer in global health at the University of Glasgow. I mostly work in a group of diseases called neglected tropical diseases, which affect millions of people worldwide, but are not very well known in general um, across the developed world, and they disproportionately affect people for how much funding or um, research that goes into them. I mostly work in a disease called schistosomiasis, but also have some people in my team working on another disease called onchocerciasis, which is known as river blindness, and schistosomiasis is more commonly known as bilharzia. Um, schistosomiasis... Yeah, so schistosomiasis, also known as bilharzia, is a parasitic worm. It's called a trematode, um, and the life cycle goes through humans and snails. Right. So the um, adult worms pair up inside the humans. They release um, eggs. They used to think that they were monogamous, but they now know that, like most species, they're not. Um, they do mate swap, but they mostly pair up inside the humans and release these eggs, and these eggs get sort of work their way through the body and then come out in the urine or the poo. And then they hatch when they hit fresh water. Right. They then turn, hatch into something called myrosidia. These myrosidia infect snails. And they reproduce asexually inside the snails and produce thousands and thousands and thousands of the next larval stage, which is called cercaria. And these cercaria look a little bit like a sperm with a forked tail. Okay. And these burrow straight into the skin of humans. Um, and so, yeah, so basically it's found in places where there's limited infrastructure for sanitation. <laughs> Um, or they should say limited infrastructure and use of because you can have the sanitation but if it's not clean and being used then obviously it's not so containing the wee and poo um, and then areas where people can't access safe water right. um, but you don't get it through drinking the water you get it through just washing just or swimming or fishing washing your clothes in the water so it's general lifestyle well that presumably makes it very difficult to do anything about yeah so it's, it's a poverty related disease and um and it's so yeah, so it's associated with poverty, so in poor rural areas, but also people who are infected, it reduces their physical and cognitive development, it causes stomach ache and abdominal pain and diarrhea and blood in the urine and, and in the poo. And so people quite often then are ill, they don't then attend school as well, um, and so therefore it also exacerbates the poverty cycle. But the biggest problem is um, how to improve sanitation in these areas. So so you, you study neglected tropical diseases. Yeah. What does that actually entail? What what about them are you studying? Cause, just because you just reeled off an in-depth description of how two of them work. Yes. <laughs> what, what is, what's the... And, and also what exacerbates them. And that it's not only just the disease, but also the yeah. uh, the poverty around it and so on. So, yeah, what do you... <laughs> What do you so do around the diseases? My, my team's research is, is really interdisciplinary, actually. So initially, I was focusing very much on the biology of mm-hmm. parasites, and my PhD looked at the effects of mass drug administration. So the World Health Organization, actually, their recommended strategy is to treat with this drug called prazequantil. 
and these drugs are donated free of charge and then they're distributed via the World Health Organization to the different countries and they administer them through the different districts in the countries. But people get really rapidly reinfected. Mm-hmm. So the ultimate aim of the treatment is to reduce long-term illness mm-hmm. and ultimately reduce transmission, but most importantly just to make sure people aren't too heavily infected. Right. So these diseases are a bit like if your dog had worms, and it's not bad if your dog had one or two, that's fine, but if you're really heavily infected, then you're ill. So it's not kind of like flu where you either have it or you don't. It's about how heavily infected you are. So some of my work, um, my team's work, is about how do we improve treatment success so when someone takes a drug how do we make that drug work as well as possible so are they actually absorbing that drug is the drug working so we're looking at drug resistance Um, but when you go in in the field and actually you monitor drug resistance and a parasite doesn't clear it's not necessarily that it's resistant because if that person hasn't absorbed the drug then obviously that parasite hasn't been exposed to the right Mm -hmm. dose and or or potentially people might be co-infected with other diseases that affect that and there might be host immune responses that affect people's ability to clear the parasites. So if people are co-infected with HIV, for example, and the drug doesn't work as well, if they're oh, um, I don't personally work on co-infection with HIV, but we do work on co-infection with malaria and then other intestinal worms. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a second part of the sort of biology of the parasite that we work on is looking at who's reinfecting whom. So using parasite genetics to see, well, actually, are parasites in this group of people similar to the parasites in the school children? So if we treat all of the school children and they get really rapidly reinfected, who is it that is driving that reinfection? Is it the school children's parasites themselves? Or is it parasites from their untreated preschool siblings? Or from parasites from fishermen, for example? So because you can't, because it's an indirectly transmitted parasite, which means it goes through the snail, and not directly from person to person, you can't do contact tracing to see who's driving those reinfections. Okay. So you have to use other methods. Contact tracing, meaning that you kind of ask people who are you in contact yeah, with? Yeah, exactly. So contact tracing, you'd use it in, in sexually transmitted disease, for example. You would ask people about previous partners. Um, or you might, for example, if somebody's ill at a school, you'll see who they've contacted at school. Um, and so you can't do that when they're actually, mm-hmm. obviously, the parasite's coming out, it's hatching, it's going into the environment. And, and so on. So we have to use other methods to try and look at the genetics of the parasite. Since moving to Glasgow, so I've been at Glasgow for two and a half years now, and they, they've sort of um, the global research community is moving towards interdisciplinary research. But I find that Glasgow is really, really supportive of that. And since moving here, I've got sort of grants with some of the engineers in the engineering department, but also social scientists and, and anthropologists. So very much working across the board. So with the anthropologists. We're looking at, the, again, the who's reinfecting whom, but working with primary school children who are either rapidly reinfected or don't really become infected at all and seeing how their actual lifestyles really do differ. Um, or indeed, if they do, where do they contact the water and sort of things like that and following that through to try and work out how this is different. And we have sort of a couple of fantastic research associates um, in Uganda called Edith and Lazaro who are working full-time on this project and doing something called rapid ethnographic appraisals, which is focus groups, interviews, participant observations and things to work out what people currently do to minimise their risk of infection and to minimise the risk of transmitting it to and, others. And how effective that is. Yeah, so how effective it is is part more of the biology side. Mm-hmm. So Edith and Lazarus are actually only working on the social science side, so we don't know how infected the people are mm-hmm. but what we want to know the ultimate goal for this project 
is to find popular potential um, interventions. Because we know which interventions work. We know that if there is full use of pitletrines um, and the pitletrines are well sealed, then they won't have transmission. But what we actually want to know is what do the communities want and what can they afford mm-hmm. and what might be popular so that when we put in intervention trials, we do something that would be popular and therefore sustainable. Because you do an intervention trial and quite often it finishes and people don't have the funds to keep it up or, you know, these people are exactly the same as ours and given a fully functioning toilet, they will use it. But if they have to walk a mile from their field to it, then that's going to mm-hmm. change their decision. Or if they're barefoot and it's very dirty, mm-hmm. um, for example. So there's lots. Or also if it floods, um, if it's a low line um, in the high water table, for example. So there's lots of different confounding factors that, that we need to take into account and be really guided by the communities over which interventions they want and therefore might be sustainable. How can you measure popularity before you've done something? So, well, it's a very, very good question. This is why I work with the anthropologists, because um, so what they look at, first of all, is how some people already manage their risk, and so that that's something they've already chosen to do without any external input. Um, and then what we're doing at the moment, so I have a new postdoc who works with me who's an economist um, called Keeler, and she is about to go out at the end of this week to go out to Uganda to do something called a discrete choice experiment. And these choice experiments, she's previously done them in renewable energy, um, and other people have done them in biodiversity or sort of bush meat hunting and a huge range of, of things. And what they do is they're these com- complex algorithms, but you come up with the different um, sort of criteria that you choose between. And then someone gives, gets given a choice. So they say, would you prefer scenario A mm-hmm. or scenario B? And those scenarios will each have about four factors in them. But it basically will, the, the program will choose randomly which ones combinations are used. And then you can analyze afterwards, after doing repeated questions such as these, these choice experiments. Um, in the long term, you can see what people value mm-hmm. and what people actually sort of relatively value. Does it mean that you kind things. of make the question not too obvious? Yeah. yeah. So when we're doing these discrete choice experiments, we're trying to do them not in the context of Bilharzia, but just in the context of sanitation mm-hmm. and water access. Um, and that's partly because we don't want people swayed by saying what they think they should say, but also because Bilharzia, although it's a big problem and 240 million people in the world have it, and it causes 200,000 or so deaths a year, it's not their number one priority. So malaria quite often is, is a bigger mm-hmm. priority. So trying to find out, or you know, diarrhea or diseases, so trying to find out what people want in general, and then obviously we can work out which ones might impact Bill Hardier as well, but to try and put it in a context of sort of sanitation. Um, so it's not too lo- loaded a question. Yeah. And they have these pictures of the different choices that they choose um, and this is this is my summary of it because I've also been learning about how these things work. <laughs> so, um, but it's a way of testing. And all of these choice experiments have been informed by a year's worth of rapid ethnographic appraisals in the communities. They've interviewed people, focus groups, to say what kind of things do they would they like, and then we're putting it back into these choice experiments to back test if that's actually what might be popular um, with other people as well. So your group members work actually builds up on like those projects build up on each other rather yes. than being like isolated little projects you do this you do that yeah. and go off and come back in three years time no so it's all really interlinked which is wonderful and exciting and addresses the bigger challenges and um, it's also hard because obviously when people are doing PhDs they have 
their own sort of discrete project. Um, but hopefully everyone sort of enjoys working as a team with a greater goal. So you said earlier about um, the way that you, because you can't do the contact tracing, you look at DNA. How, how, I mean, how does that work? Is, is it just that you're looking, you're looking for families of... Yeah, so it's... Um, it's so what, what we do, so first of all, we were using something called microsatellites, mm-hmm. which is a method where you look at different sections of the DNA and actually you look at how long those sections are. And they're sections of DNA, they're called tandem repeats, so they're sort of two or three or four base pairs long in repeat. So they can be up to 100 and f- or two, 300 base pairs long. But basically, if, um, if you've got a section of that DNA that's 303 base pairs long and then a different section that's exactly 104, and then you can compare that variability with someone else, right. or with parasites from someone else, and, um, and see how similar they are. Um, these methods are much cheaper than actually genome sequencing, mm-hmm. and the genome of this parasite is quite big, so it's um, 373 so, big, which might mean something to some people, but it's very big, about 10 times bigger than malaria. So you kind of have like these... You have these packages of information coming, but you don't even have to look into them. You just have to look that from every parasite family, the packages differ in size. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of taking a little snapshot. Say I have brown hair, you have brown hair, you have blonde hair. Um, you know, I wear contact lenses, you've got glasses on. You know, so you might take different sort of snapshots and say we're more likely to be related than you and I. So, um, so I think that but this is obviously only a tiny snapshot yeah. of the information, whereas if you took the whole genome, that would be all of it. Now, microsatellites have been really helpful for some things, but for this um, resolution, we're not getting what we need. So we actually use something where we use up to 17 microsatellites per parasite, and it's not getting the resolution we need. So we're now trying a new technique, which is called RAD-seq, um, which again is not as expensive as sequencing the whole genome. But what you do is chop up the whole genome and you look at random sections um, between 100 or 400 base pairs long, for example, and you sequence all of that and you can look for single nucleotide polymorphisms. They're called SNPs, which are single base pairs. So the A might have changed to a T or Mm -hmm. C might have changed to a G. And you can look at those in these given sections. And so it's a way of sequencing part of the genome, but not paying the full cost of sequencing it all. That's interesting. It's like always... Crying and how with yeah. how little can I get by? Exactly, yeah. I mean, we'd love to sequence it all, but it's just too expensive. Is that just cost of the general procedure or cost of doing it in an environment like out on a field or? No, it's a general procedure. So we bring these samples back, um, and we are um, processing them in Glasgow, and then some of the samples are getting sent off for sequencing. Whilst we're optimizing the techniques, we are sending some off actually to be sequenced in China for whole genome sequencing. But that's kind of to make sure we we know what our end game is. But mm-hmm. for, for actual big wide scale studies, we couldn't afford to do that. And um, my postdoc Christina has just got a grant actually from the Scottish Council to start looking at point of care PCR, so looking at genetics actually and diagnosing things in the field. Um, it's so interesting to like coming from um, or having had this conversation a few times with. Duncan coming from physics or a few other physicists who work in the same group and that I've uh, that I've talked to about the difference between I guess from my perspective predominantly physics and electrical engineering or maybe engineering in general or between biology and medicine for example is that and this might offend a few people but I find I get the impression that quite often in engineering it's like 
do it as well as needed mm. and don't go beyond that because um, if you just want the car to drive then that's what it should do and if you didn't want it to fly then why are you trying to make it fly mm. you're wasting resources based on your first yeah I mean uh, on, coming, your, on your first goal coming you know? from physics it's like but we can make it fly, fly. Why, why, why would you not make it fly like, because we want everyone to <coughs> be able to afford it and yes but flying is cool you yeah. know so so but we can we can sequence the entire genome okay yeah fine but what do you need it for so i yeah. find it interesting to um to actually see research that i guess is so close to application yeah um, that, that, that you just have to you have to cut cut corners wherever you can to get to get your goal as well as possible yeah completely so it's it's you know, the difference between applied research and blue skies thinking, and we very much need both as a scientific community, that if you are literally trying to say, well, actually, we don't have enough drugs to go around, we are at the moment are mainly treating school children, but they're getting reinfected, who do we use our extra sort of very limited supply of drugs to treat? Well, that's the question we need to answer. And there is only a given amount of funding to do that, so we try and do that as cheaply as, as possible, but whilst getting accurate results. So obviously not at the hopefully not cutting any not scientific corners, just financial corners. Um, but then there are other projects as well, which are sort of I have a student Lauren working on microbiome analysis, which is um, you know some of the more expensive side of, of that, but answering very important questions about the effect of microbiome on parasite clearance and and the effect of treatment on that gut microbiome, and also diet. So what people have eaten, because we know nutritional values affect microbiome, but nutrition also affects your susceptibility to infections so there's lots of interlinking but I guess the best way is if you've got all these projects individually but then when you put them together the sum is greater than the parts hopefully (laughs) fingers crossed yeah Um, (laughs) I I, I have more questions go go okay I was just I was just going to be gushing you ask questions go on no no be be. how how does it work then with um how do you even get a, a scope or a, or see the scale of comorbidities or like or how how that works together? Like, do you do you ask people? Do you have to diagnose people when it comes to diseases that you can't just see or things like malaria mm. that come in episodes? Or how does that work? So it's a that's a really good question actually. So um, a lot of the diseases we work on, and part of the reason I think that they're neglected as well. And not only because they don't sort of affect rich tourists, but um, but also because the the morbidities are so sort of subtle and and spread. So they're comorbidities. So even you know malaria is quite well known, but a lot of time people feel um, sort of fevery. They might have abdominal pain with malaria, diarrhea with malaria, all of which obviously link with with um, other infections such as intestinal worms or, or bilharzia. Um, and the hardest thing about that as well is when you do treat people, how do you prove you're making a difference? Mm-hmm. So one really obvious morbidity level is anemia. And we treat people for bilharzia, which causes you know, slight anemia, but then there's something called hookworm, an intestinal worm that really strongly is linked to anemia, and malaria. So when you're in the field, we kind of test what we can, um, but then you, you obviously financially can't afford to test everything. Ethically, there's also, it's quite difficult, so we'd like to work in the future more with people with HIV and knowing their status, um, but uh, supposedly it's, there's available treatment for everybody in the country who's mm-hmm. diagnosed, but actually that treatment is available but hours away from them, mm-hmm. and they don't have public transport. 
So, so it's not quite as simple. So if you diagnose someone, then obviously by sort of ethically you're supposed to treat them or make sure that treatment's available. So there are problems associated with that. And a lot of the morbidities all kind of interlink. Um, and the, the parasites and the viruses and everything interlink inside as well. They're really interconnected. So if you are immunosuppressed, you don't excrete as many eggs. Mm. Um, but there's a really neat study that was shown, I think published earlier this year, and I saw it at a conference last year, which was showing that the sex of the host, so the sex of the human, affected how much HIV affected the egg excretion of Bilharzia. And, you know, taking all of these into account, and you just think, wow, there's so many factors, and so statistically-wise, to take them all into account is, is huge. And then when we're in the communities, and you say to a child, do you feel ill? And they yeah. go, no. And a lot of people then just skip on. But actually, if you carry on, you say, do you have stomachache? Yes. Do you have blood in your stool? Yes. Do you have diarrhea? Yes. Do you vomit when you eat? Yes. Oh, I always do. You're like, oh, my oh, <laughs> I, I would consider that ill. Yeah. And, and but yeah, what, if it's your normal, then it's your normal. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of what they... And there's a lot of places where, say, for example, blood in the urine is the um, one of the main symptoms of one of the species of Bilharzia, schistosoma hematobium. Um, and a lot of people actually think that that's associated with a sign of maturity. So it's kind of like, well, actually, when you get to about 14 years old, your urine becomes red and you've reached maturity. Um, but obviously that's also probably painful, but they just take that as normal. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's, it's not, an, um, yeah, there's a lot of things to, to address. And we also find that when we treat people, um, this is kind of anecdotal, but when you ask people about side effects with the treatment, some of the healthiest children say, oh, yes, I felt awful. Whereas some of the people with very heavy infections say, oh, no, I didn't have any side effects. Did you vomit? Yes, but I quite often do. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so it's, it's all putting it in context that it's a, it's a very complex situation. <laughs> but that's what keeps it interesting. And hopefully we can help peace pipings. What does your average day look like? What, oh, blimey. You know, what um, do you... Because, <laughs> like, obviously you're working on all of these things, but it feels like they're all quite disparate and there are various things that are happening in other countries and... Like what? Yeah, so because I also have a big grant to work on river blindness as well, funded by the Drugs for Neglected Diseases Initiative. Um, so there's lots of, yeah, it is quite, well, I wouldn't say it's disparate, the, the overall end goals are very, this, very mm. similar. But yeah, it is um, on a day to day basis, well, I absolutely write down what I need to do. And it's normally a weeks long thing and it kind of is rolling. Um, and anyone who knows me or has ever worked with me knows that I will never be in before 9.30, and that's probably still being generous on the morning. So. <laughs> um, but, but I do, um, I mean, I've got a fantastic team, and my, I, I feel like I spend most of my day doing emails these days, but, um, but uh, yeah, and I kind of feel like I haven't done real science myself for, for a while, but I do know that my team is still producing fantastic it's doing it somewhere. So, yes, it's getting done somewhere. <laughs> But uh, I think it's really varied and, you know, when I'm in, in Glasgow, obviously it's kind of emails and meetings and a bit of lab work and training students and, and, and so on. Um, but then in Uganda, it's, it's an early morning and a chapati for breakfast and then you just process more poo than you could shake a stick at. <laughs> um, and, yeah, when I did my PhD, everyone's like, oh, your feces and shitty samosas. <laughs> but... Um, but yeah, and just work. And also, though, there's amazing moments in the field where you work so hard, and you, the kids are fantastic. And I just remember one of these sort of core cool memories in um, 
in Uganda and doing the hokey cokey with about 60 children in this village <laughs> called the Wonder. And just, you know, none of them really understanding what I was doing, but shaking their legs and bodies around. <laughs> I didn't care anyway. Nice. So, yeah, it's, um, I feel very lucky to work with them. I feel like I'm going to regret asking this question, but when you say processing poo. Yeah, no. What? Um, what? So, on a normal day in the field, <laughs> so we arrive at the school. Um, which is anywhere between 40 minutes and an hour and a half's journey from where we stay through some quite kind of muddy, bumpy roads. Um, and we arrive at the school and the teachers help us recruit all the children. And depending on which children we're recruiting, working on that day, they all kind of sign up and they, um, well, they queue up, they have this sort of black sheet of plastic um, with a tape on one side with their initials and their um, anonymous ID code, and then a little tube for urine, and they run off. And young kids are really easy to work with because they can on demand. <laughs> with adults, we obviously send them with pots and wait, and they come back with the pots. But with children, they just run away and bring the samples back. And then the first thing, for example, if we're doing microbiome analyses, is that's the number one priority because they have to be stored and frozen as soon as possible. So a subsection of the stool gets taken for that. Then um, we'll do a... Um, so the urine can be used for dipsticks to see if there's blood in the urine. But also, we actually work in an area for schistosoma mansoni, which is not the urine one, it's the stool one. And so we mostly use the urine for antigen detection. So it's a regurgitated gut antigen from the adult worm. So it means a live, active, feeding adult worm. And that's excreted in the urine. And there's a rapid diagnostic test we can use for that. And then can the stool... I, can I ask yeah. who developed us? So that was... Well, the antigen was first um, discovered in, by people in Leiden University. Okay. Um, in the Netherlands and we're actually working with them at the moment so I've got a PhD currently advertised <laughs> can't use this as a plug because I'm sure it'll close by the time but um, to do uh, to develop another rapid test but for something that is um, pan species so across all of the schistosome species whereas this one is really only accurate for schistosome and that's cool yeah so it's amazing really rapid detection and much more sensitive than what we use so at the moment we use something called catacats for the stool and they basically each stool gets um, taken opened a little bit put, put through a sieve and then taken and pushed onto a slide a given volume and then you squash that and, and that gets looked under the microscope for eggs for schistosome and mansoni but also intestinal worms and if it's read quick enough you can read hookworm but if you wait too long then the hookworm um, breaks down quite quickly hmm. and then the stool is then also taken for um hatching so we then um, rinse them in water we wash them we store them overnight and then we put them out in sunlight in the morning to collect the live myricidia so that's what we use for the genetics mm. um, and then we also get finger prick blood samples from the children and that's for malaria testing for haemoglobin but also for potential diagnostics um, and the haemoglobin would be to see if they're anemic, anemic. Okay. yeah so as far as i understand you work on um, neglected tropical diseases, mm -hmm. and you've been doing so from your PhD onwards. Mm -hmm. And uh, you've reached a point where most of your work is not actually being in the lab yourself, but managing other researchers that come from loads of different uh, disciplines. Um, and you're working on a disease with a very difficult to pronounce name, <laughs> schisto something. <laughs> oh, so close. Go on, go on, have a bash. Schistosomiasis. 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 I almost knew that. Yeah. And you're working on... Well, an, to be fair, we all call it schisto. So it's schisto, okay. onco, LF. No one ever says the full word. So. 
You so you work like a pro. If you say you work on Shisto, so so you work on uh, Shisto, and that is uh, that's basically a parasite that um, needs both humans and snails to go through a complete life cycle from uh, the larva state to adult to reproduction and back. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, most of your work um, is focused on or this problem or this disease exists in uh, Uganda amongst other places and that's where you've been doing a lot of field work as well and interacting not only with um, the locals but also with uh, healthcare officials and government officials in Uganda to make that happen on a meaningful scale. Sounds good. Excellent. Marvelous. Me and Duncan, we are smiling after this interview because sometimes it's difficult to get across, but I hope that you can hear it in the recording. But yeah, Poppy just seems to be such a nice and approachable oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. researcher. Yeah. And you get the impression if she sees something in her research that she knows someone in her group can do really well or can do better for her or someone else might get credit for it. And she's like, great, let's Just go do for it. it. Yeah, no, yeah. 100%. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I'll support you. Like it's, it really seems to be a very pleasant type of leadership. Oh, absolutely. Very supportive. Absolutely. It's, yeah. Um, yeah, no, no. She seems like, and even, even not as a leader, just as a person to chat to, she was, she was, you know, fun. And I have to say the work that they're doing seems to, seems to be very uh, worthwhile to me. Um, you know, there's, there's these diseases that are rife, that are under-addressed and that, you know, they're addressing. It's just, it's good to see. So yeah, another, another uh, interesting episode, hopefully. And I guess it's time to say goodbye. Um, we should run down the standard things. So not exactly rocketscience.fm. Um, Twitter at exactly rocket. Yep. Yeah, uh, and uh, tell your friends. Always, always tell your friends. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.